Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Small. He is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University, where he is the Boris and Rose Katz Professor of Neurology. He is appointed in the departments of Neurology, Radiology and Psychiatry, with an expertise in Alzheimer's disease and cognitive aging. Dr. Small's research focuses on the hippocampus, a circuit in the brain targeted by these and other disorders, notably schizophrenia. He is the author of a book we're going to talk about today, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. So, Scott, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so let's perhaps start with some basic questions. Uh, what are the different types of memory that we have? Well, obviously, in any field, you can get very granular, but I'll keep it high altitude, uh, which I think is right, the right altitude. Uh, often people think about different kinds of memories. I think it's all often more useful to think about how our brain processes information. And in fact, we have the perfect analogy, which is our, our, our laptops or hard drives. And it's not a coincidence because uh, nature's engineers and computer engineers had to deal with the same issue of how to uh, process, store, and, and, and retrieve vast amount of information. So in, 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 in that way, um, one can simplify almost ad absurdum, but I think it's helpful as a general map. Uh, just like in your computer, you have a hard drive. We have a hard drive in our brains where memories are stored. But then it's critical, just like if you were to type something on a Word document to be able to save information from your short-term memory to your hard drive, that's the save function in a very simplistic sense. That's what the hippocampus does, a structure that's uh, in the two, two structures in the medial temporal lobe. And then, just like your computer, if tomorrow you want to open up that document, you need to click open. That is, in a very general sense, uh, served by the frontal cortex. So you have memory storage, you have the shift from short to long-term memory, you have the ability to, to save information, and you have the ability to retrieve information. So should we say that memory is localized? Is it localized in the brain? Yeah, the issue of modularity and localization, um, I'm not sure, uh, you know, if your audience are familiar with that, with the issue that these are loaded terms and they're debated often. <clears throat> I think, uh, like many debates, the extreme versions I think most people think are wrong. So the extreme versions would be that the brain is really made up of islands of real estate, you know, an archipelago of islands that are discrete versus the distributed processing idea that it's just a network with equal nodes, those two extremes probably are wrong. What is true, the brain's a network certainly, all areas are interconnected. And so I think the better way to think about it are, are, are hubs and, and hub and net, hub model of a network organization. And in that sense, there clearly is localization. So the hippocampus, as we just said, uh, is a hub that contributes to the whole network's ability to save information. The frontal cortex is the hub that works with many areas, but it's the hub that regulates retrieval of information. 
So there, there is localization, but it's not discrete. Mm -hmm. But now to try to be a little bit more specific, what do you do we know about the neuroscience of memory? So, for example, uh, just the first question, do we know exactly how memories are formed? So, of course, as a lawyer, I will litigate exactly and say exactly the answer to that should always be no. But I, I think we do know a lot. Um, and I think we know a lot at the organizational level of the neuroanatomy of memory. And we also know a lot uh, at the fundamental cellular level of memory. So again, back to the computer, there is a blueprint about how the computer is organized. You don't need to know much about, you know, um, basic uh, bits and how they're formed, but there are bits. Uh, and the bits in the brain are the tips of neurons called synapses. So we know how memory is shifted and sorted and organized at the blueprint level. And we also know a lot about how uh, information is actually encoded uh, uh, across multiple neurons. Right. And so could you give us perhaps, uh, I don't know, perhaps this is too detailed, but could you give us perhaps some details about, uh, okay, at the neuronal level, what happens there when a particular memory is formed? Yeah, and um, I, I certainly can. And um, so, so what one hand dance I like to use is, you know, you, let's just simplify it. Obviously, memories are stored across millions of neurons, billions of synapses. But if you imagine two neurons, multiple synapses, uh, um, a memory is formed essentially when these two neurons have a strengthening of their con connections. So the tips of the of the neurons connect. Uh, and we do know the molecular mechanisms that underlie that. Uh, and that's quite remarkable, I think. And it also leads into forgetting, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> right. But for example, is it possible uh, with what we know now and with the kinds of technologies we have at our disposal to explain how and why certain particular contents are stored in the brain? I think we do. I, I, again, I, I don't know exactly how precise you want this to be, but we certainly understand uh, why if I interrupt with a toolbox that allows our neurons to connect, why you will not be able to form memories. We certainly know why when I have a patient whose hippocampus is malfunctioning, why they can't save information. We certainly know why someone who has a frontal cortex lesion why they have difficulty retrieving information. And then finally, just to complete the sort of three parts of memory, we also know rare cases where you have uh, problems in your hard drive and then memories are actually deleted. So in that way, we know, uh, but there's a lot more to know, of course, always. Mm -hmm. And is there, do we know something specific about how memories get recalled? Yeah, so the, 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 the basic idea of a recall is once you've established that stable connection, again, I'll go with my two neurons, um, all I need to, so uh, in the book, and I think most neuroscientists like to use real examples and a good real life examples are faces and names, something we all do, something we all complain about sometimes, or if it's someone we don't like, uh, we complain about memory, memorizing them too much, but basically, 
Um, if you imagine now, the, the, this is a many neurons, but let's just say a face neuron, a name neuron. I, I've met you for the first time today. Tomorrow I see you, uh, and that will activate the face neuron, which will then stimulate the name neuron, and thereby I can recall your name. <clears throat> right. But uh, should we understand memory in interaction with other aspects of cognition, like, for example, emotions? Absolutely. And in the book, in fact, so the book does have, uh, by necessity, if I'm going to explain forgetting, I have to explain memory. Um, and uh, everything we've just talked about sort of has, has dealt with memory on a, on a simply cognitive level, information. But part of information, certainly for animals is also the emotional content of that memory. So if I uh, were to see a bully in a schoolyard coming towards me, I will remember his name, I will remember his face, but I also re will remember uh, potential fear uh, and maybe even aggression. Okay, so uh, uh, let's now get into forgetting specifically. Does forgetting serve any functions? Yeah, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll give a quick overview there because this is not the book I expected to write as my first book, my okay. first general okay. book. Uh, I've been, as you in <coughs> introduction talked about my focus as a neurologist on pathological forgetting, Alzheimer's, aging, diseases that cause memory loss. Um, and all my career, I, and I'd say the field, has really focused on how to make memory better, how to prevent pathological forgetting. What, what has been really interesting in the last 10 years or so is that the field has identified um, why normal forgetting, not the pathological forgetting that happens in my patients, God forbid. Um, I would never say that that's a beneficial thing. It's just the fact we're born with forgetting, just like we're born uh, with different capacities for height and for IQ. Uh, and um, there was always this view that, okay, that's maybe true, but that's just a nuisance. That's just evolution not catching up and uh, like the appendix. We'll get rid of that forgetting and we'll be like computer hard drives. We'll have perfect memory. That's often the superpower many of us uh, seem to fantasize about. But the new science of forgetting has taught us that, in fact, forgetting is distinct mechanistically than memory. So it's not just the rusting of memory. It's a, actually a different set of tools and molecular tools in our brains that actively regulate forgetting. And then one gets to ask, well, if that's true, what happens when the normal memory, uh, the normal forgetting stop, starts malfunctioning? And when that starts malfunctioning, to get to your question, I apologize if this is a, a long-winded answer, uh, a lot of problems occur. The easiest one are our emotional memories, but it's also true in our cognitive abilities and our creative abilities, uh, and that's what I go into the book a lot on. By the way, uh, does anyone have any pathology where they can't forget things? So there is this literature, and I would say slightly mythologized literature on what's sometimes called edictic memory or photographic memory. The person who is, in fact, like our uh, iPhones, you take a snapshot, it goes to the cloud, and it's there forever. It turns out 
that that does not exist or it's vanishingly rare. What does exist, and they truly are impressive, uh, you have people who have incredible uh, memories for particular domains like chess players and movement or even if, you know, movement, uh, um, tennis players or basketball players. Mm -hmm. That's a remarkable feat of memory, how to shoot the basketball every time the same way. You have what are called memory athletes uh, or memory magicians who through a lot of practice can walk into a room and remember hundreds of names simultaneously. That's all quite impressive. There's a range of memory across all of us, but it turns out when these exceptional people with memory are studied, none of them have uh, memories, uh, have photographic memory for everything, in, in a lack of ability to, to forget. Um, so that's, that's one issue that I think needs clarifying. Um, there's something about autism which I'd like to come back to if you're interested, uh, but I'll, I, I don't want to you know, dominate, I don't want to lecture, I want this to be a discussion. So. Sure, sure. Uh, but, uh, I mean, what do we know specifically about the neurological basis of forgetting? Do we know anything specific about how it occurs at the neural level? What events have to happen for someone to forget something? Yes, and, and that's what's interesting. So basically, if I go back to my hand metaphor, so we talked about how memory happens when two neurons strengthen their connections. And it used to be thought that forgetting was just this sort of gradually degrades, like a rusting, like a, like a you know, over time. Um, but what was, what's really fascinating, and this gets into autism and other disorders, is that um, the, the neurons have a dedicated uh, toolbox of little nanomachines that allow those connections to strengthen. And what has been discovered is that there's a completely separate toolbox, a completely set, separate set of molecular mechanisms that very carefully disassemble the connection. So you have the assembly, disassembly, they're, they're governed by two separate knobs. Uh, and because of that, you can begin to ask, well, what happens when the forgetting knob um, uh, is malfunctions, just like what I do for all my life is ask, well, what happens when the memory knob malfunctions? So we understand the molecular mechanisms um, and they're distinct. And I think that's really the basis of the book. Mm -hmm. But here, when we talk about forgetting, are we talking about memories being completely erased from the brain or simply the fact that, uh, for, for example, uh, when it occurs that someone is trying to recall a name, a fact, a statistic, a number or something like that, and they can't really do it at that particular moment, but then, then later on it comes to their mind. Is that right. also forgetting? Well, that's a really good point. That's why I'm, ha I'm, I'm happy that you asked me about the kind of the operations in the beginning. That's really a retrieval problem, right? Mm -hmm. So if you open your computer tomorrow and you have, you know, a thousand documents, you probably have more. And imagine your, um, <clears throat> your hard drive was jumbled. It would be mm -hmm. hard for you to quickly find that one document, but it's still in the hard drive. But it is... It, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual memories that are no longer there. And, and, and just to point out, 
memory and forgetting is not just uh, what, are, what is sometimes called in the professional literature declarative conscious memories, you know, my childhood, what I did yesterday, what right. I ate for breakfast. Memory, by definition, means um, everything that's happening to you right now is recorded by your brain. You know, the shirt you're wearing, not only just looking at me and talking to me, uh, the temperature outside, and that's recorded. And a lot of that gets deleted. And, you know, the, the easy example, but it's, I think it's so easy as maybe the least interesting example, um, is emotions, right? Emotions, if, 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 if you have a traumatic event, you, met, you remember the trauma, you re-experience the, um, the pain, that's memory. And that gradually dissipates. It doesn't mean that you completely forget every element of it, but the, uh, re, the, the, the forgetting of the pain is forgetting, is the actual deletion. And, and that's the mechanisms that I think we now understand better. And it's, the, and it's the essence of, you know, it's interesting. There are diseases that are too much memory. So PTSD is a disorder of too much memory. We might come back to autism. It's a complicated case. Um, um, nostalgia is a disorder of too much memory. Uh, according to Hoffer's description, Hoffer is the guy in 1688 who wrote his medical school thesis on too much emotional memory among Swiss soldiers, and he called it nostalgia. He also wanted to call, call it nosomania. Uh, he thought it was a disorder of too much memory of homeland. So, you know, there are, that's not a real disorder, but there are real disorders of too much memory, like PTSD, like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, uh, etc. <clears throat> Yeah, we'll get into some pathologies and the pathological sides of forgetting later on in the interview. But before that, uh, how does forgetting relate to things like e emotional well-being? Why do we need forgetting to be uh, emotionally well? Well, like I said, it's interesting for me in the book, the easiest... Uh, by the way, it was interesting for me. I mean, I... I um, Often I've been asked to write a book about Alzheimer's. I'm happy to write it, but only when there's a better last chapter on a cure, and there isn't, despite the recent news. Um, but the, um, the easiest example, and I think the most intuitively understood benefits of forgetting is emotional forgetting, right? You can't forgive if you can't forget. Uh, marital therapists uh, tell me, you know, Scott, you're working on drugs for Alzheimer's, develop a drug that will improve forgetting. Because in my, for my patients, married couples were having trouble. If I can give them a forgetful pill, it would help them. The, the, that's a sl slightly um, facetious uh, example, although they have asked me that. But in PTSD, if you had a drug that accelerated forgetting, that's the cure for PTSD. Uh, did I did I get off topic topic or did I answer your question, uh, Ricardo? Uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, perhaps in those cases we are talking about people having to deal with particularly traumatic emotional events. But uh, I mean, just in people's day-to-day yeah, -day lives. You're, you're you're absolutely right. I I I've uh, I, I've revealed the fact that I'm an MD first and foremost, so I tend to go to the pathologies. And in fact, in the book, I deal with that. You're absolutely right. The question is, is forgetting, if we st stick in the emotional domain, is forgetting 
really helpful emotionally? And, and the answer is yes. I think, again, most people know that it, it, it's not a traumatic event, but if you keep on perseverating over uh, a bad experience, it, it'll be all consuming. People know that it's good to, to, to wait and let, let, let the hot brain uh, um, subside. The interesting chapter, the, mo the one that actually maybe was the most interesting to me and to your question on the beneficial, the benefits of emotional forgetting was, is, a, is a comparative anatomy between bonobos and chimps. Um, and it turns out, so I think most people know that, you know, they're basically evolutionary cousins, if not twins, and we're part of that. Um, we're part of practically triplets from an evolutionary point of view. Bonobos and chimps, however, are distinct in their uh, emotional disposition, right? Chimps are meant to be aggressive and hierarchical bonobos in a simplified way are more relaxed and communal. And one reason for that, one has to be careful of oversimplification, is because the area of the brain, back to modularity, that stores fear memories is much more hyperactive in chimps than it is in bonobos. And so in that chapter, I talk about, uh, you know, if you really want to, if you feel, if one feels, not you, if one feels that they're um, too, too angry, too aggressive, they feel lonely, they feel they can't love enough, one reason for that is because um, what, one, one way to enhance or improve all those qualities is to learn to emotionally forget. It turns out that if you emotionally forget, you turn out to be a nicer person <laughs> and with a friendlier disposition. Again, I'm going to bracket everything I say with the oversimplification qualification. I'm not sure if um, I certainly can condone this as a doctor. This is a public forum. I'm not sure if anyone uh, in your viewership ha have done um, recreational drugs. But if anyone feels sort of friendlier and nicer after that first sip of alcohol, not the third or fifth or the sixth or God forbid, you know, more, what that part of that friendlier disposition is because the area of your brain that stores the emotional memories is relaxing. Uh, and the better example of that, I'm not recommending this, and you can delete this after if you think it's inappropriate, but ecstasy or MDMA, we know exactly why people feel why, why it's called ecstasy, because people feel they describe love and a, and a communal sense and a nicer disposition. One of the dominant mechanisms of these drugs is to temporarily um, turn off our fear memories. But in the specific case of alcohol, isn't it the case that at least some people, when they drink a lot, get uh, aggressive and very yes. emotional and so on? Yes, yes. And that's why I qualified that first sip. A after a while, and this is just a generalization, most people in the first sip of alcohol feel this sort of relaxation. And that's why I think alcohol is so attractive. It, it, it relaxes. Alcohol does a lot. Uh, please, I'm not saying it just does this. And certainly after that second drink, it's a completely different thing. And there are other areas of the brains that are affected. But um, it's just a good way to, um, to communicate a way to experience the benefit to one's uh, social disposition by relaxing or um, turning down our fear memories. Right. 
And what about creativity? Does forgetting help with creativity? Yeah, that that in many ways was really interesting to me. Um, maybe that's the thing that I learned most from the book. Again, I, a book about Alzheimer's, I can probably write much more easily. I had to go into learn about bonobos and chimps. I had to learn about autism, which is not my field. And then I did have chats with Jasper Johns, who's uh, one of the, uh, I think, generally acknowledged as uh, one of the most um, uh, famous living uh, American um, artists on creativity and memory. Uh, so first on the pathological side, again, I always make the distinction over and over again and here again, I am not poeticizing pathology. I'm not saying that there's a silver lining to having Alzheimer's or aging. I am just talking about normal. So in that chapter, we first talked because he was very friendly with Willem de Kooning, who was the great artist, and he had dementia in late life. And we talked about how pathological forgetting may or may not influence his creativity. But then that segued into sleep. And uh, people have asked me, well, how do I know, how do I experience the benefits of forgetting? It turns out that and th that one of um, one of the dominant functions of sleep, again, many reasons for sleep, is to induce smart forgetting. Um, that's a term that's been used by the field uh, of sleep because what it does is, if you imagine that throughout a day, vast fields of our dendrites, of our neurons are connecting, full of a lot of stuff. When we sleep, there's active forgetting. And so I'm not sure if you've ever been sleep deprived, but if anyone who's sleep deprived for two or three days, that's a brain with too much memory, with forgetting gone awry. And the reason that links into creativity is because a number of studies have shown <coughs> um, that the better uh, we sleep, the more creative we are. And one interpretation of it is that what creativity, many definitions of creativity, and again, this comes out from my conversation with creative artists, not me, but a definition of creativity that I found interesting is that, um, it, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the eureka moment, the inspiration. It's actually not true. What cre creativity requires prior knowledge, which means memory, but it also requires that the information stay loose and playful. If, if information is too locked in and concrete, right. there's no creativity. And so loose and playful is just another one of those colloquial words for forgetting, because basically you need to keep the connections loose. And so there is an interesting argument for why forgetting is beneficial for creativity, which I found quite interesting in reading about it and writing about it. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, do we know if there's individual variation in how people memorize and forget things? And if, for example, some people are better at memorizing or forgetting things than others? Absolutely. And again, back to the quantitative traits, height, there's a range of distributions, IQ, weight, anything you want. It's a, there's a Gaussian, right? A normal distribution. There are people who are there's no, no one who has that sort of mythological photographic memory, but there are certainly people who have exceptional memory. I, I went to medical school. I've met those people who can memorize everything in an afternoon, and it's quite marvelous to see. And, and then you have people who are just normally on the other side of the spectrum. 
So yes, there is a there is a broad variation uh, in memory, um, but I have yet to meet someone, no matter how good their memory is, who does not complain about their forgetting. And one of the this was not meant to be a feel good book <laughs> or a self help book, but one of the things that uh, my editor was delighted by is that basically it's telling everyone if it's normal forgetting, just be thankful you have it. Don't keep on wanting to be a computer hard drive because that's a curse. Yeah. Is there any evolutionary rationale for why we evolved forgetting? I mean, are the sorts of benefits we've been talking about the reasons why we evolved this capacity? Right. And, you know, again, on the bracketing of being careful of oversimplification, any time, any, I think that's certainly true for any evolutionary question. I'm certainly not an evolutionary biologist, but here's what I am convinced of um, that, and I think, I think most would agree with this, that there is an evolutionary advantage to have a accelerator and a braking system, a, mem a, a, a memory system and a forgetting system to strike the perfect balance, the perfect equipoise. Because, and that's basically the subtext of the book, actually maybe the, 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 the main theme of the book, it's not that forgetting it by itself is beneficial, but in the seesaw it's forgetting in memory when it's at perfect balance that's beneficial. Because without forgetting, we would live uh, miserably lonely lives, perhaps non-creative lives, um, and fearful lives. Mm -hmm. uh is there a particular point when forgetting becomes pathological? Yes. So now, yeah. Um, PTSD is an example, is the go-to example of where uh, the forgetting mechanism has gone awry. Um, I, can I say something about autism, but it's going to take a little bit of time because I, because autism is, is, is fraught, you know? Uh, yeah. I was also going to ask you about autism and Alzheimer's, but if you want to talk about it now, we could talk about it later or whenever you want, but PTSD is an example of, um, of forgetting gone awry. If anyone has been, I've, I've once been sleep deprived for three days. I had hallucinations and delusions. I couldn't focus. There are a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because my normal forgetting was pathological. Right. Uh, okay. So, in the, since we're talking about PTSD, I mean, what are the kinds of just to get a clear picture of what we're talking about? What are the kinds of experiences that trigger PTSD, and why is it the case? What happens uh, that uh, that explains why people cannot get past these right. kinds of memories? And that's a great question, and it's a clinical question. And because what's really, I mean, obviously, PT, post-trauma, we've all experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. there, are, there, are, there are really elegant studies, and in that chapter, I, 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 my, my, um, my guide was an expert in PTSD, a guy named Yuval Nuriaus at Columbia, who runs the PTSD program. Um, it, it's interesting that it's not just the degree of trauma. In other words, the, he and others have done studies after 9-11, after many Trump traumatic events, maybe after COVID, thousands of people are exposed to the same tra trauma, but only some develop PTSD. And yes. so then it becomes the really interesting question why. And there are a whole list of reasons. 
one of the things that I found most interesting, and, and I say that in the book because, again, a little bit about me, I'm a reductionist. I'm a, pharma, I'm a neuropharmacologist. I'm, I try to understand the brain at the level of the cell and the molecule. I like drugs uh, to develop them for cures. But what's so interesting in PTSD is that one of the dominant functions is that that distinguishes those who develop PTSD or not. There are a lot of factors, genetics, there are a lot of factors. But the thing I'm getting to is what was most interesting to me as a reductionist. Um, and that is the dominant, a dominant factor that predisposes someone to develop PTSD is social loneliness after the event. So um, someone who is exposed to the trauma, let's say a soldier, right? is maybe mildly injured physically, is sent back home, no social structure, no friends, maybe the family is not quite, knows how to deal with the person. It's that, um, it's that lack of social protective fabric that predisposes someone, which I found so interesting because it's not about cells or, 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 or molecules, it's about the importance of socializing to try to prevent all traumas from imprinting themselves on our brain. So does that mean then that even if someone is genetically predisposed to developing PTSD after being exposed to a traumatic event, if they have some sort of social support, they, uh, that is a mitigating factor? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the words here are mitigating risk. This is not a all or none event, right? And mm -hmm. so it's, it's a composite of many things. Genes, the personal's environment, uh, a lot of things. But um, it is true that among the ways to mitigate or a beneficial uh, uh, way to reduce risk is to make sure that that, that you stay socially engaged and live a life glittered with love and happiness. I can't believe I just said that. That is so, that is so not my style, but it was the inevitable conclusion of that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, would you like to talk about Alzheimer's or autism first? Whatever you prefer. Okay, so let's start with Alzheimer's then. Uh, I would like to know not only what happens to people's memory when they suffer from Alzheimer's, but uh, do we, can we learn something about how memory functions by studying these sort of pathological conditions like Alzheimer's, PTSD, autism? Right, but I, I will, I, yes, great question, I'll answer it. But in my framework now, Alzheimer's is pathological memory yeah. or pathological forgetting. Right. Um, whereas um, autism and PTSD is forgetting, uh, normal forgetting that's pathological. So one is a memory problem, the other is a forgetting problem in this sort okay. of, yeah. yeah so, sure. so in Alzheimer's, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, so Alzheimer's has taught us a lot. It's taught us that uh, a lot about the hippocampus, and this is my area of expertise. The hippocampus itself is a circuit. We talk about networks made up of different regions. It, ta it, ta it, it teaches us what goes wrong. It teaches us what part of the hippocampus does what. Um, 
so we do, and then we know that Alzheimer's spreads over time. So, you know, over time, other areas of the brain are affected. But that's exactly why most people with Alzheimer's disease, and I think you know that Alzheimer's is a slowly percolating disorder. Mm-hmm. We're pushing time zero back. It's probably decades. By the time I see a patient in my office, they've probably had Alzheimer's disease for at least a decade. But if you wind back that movie, the first manifestations of most people with Alzheimer's is hippocampal dependent memory loss. In other words, it's the save function. Their memory stores are normal. The retrieval process is normal. But if I were to ask them, you know, what you ate for breakfast this morning, we all might fumble with that. They'll fumble more. So their save function is starting to to flicker. It's not shut down, but it flickers. If I could just say one thing, Ricardo, on on, on Alzheimer's and what my patients have taught me. And again, there's no good thing about Alzheimer's. I, I really dislike it when we physicians try to pathologize poetry, uh, um, uh, po- poeticize pathology. There's a silver lining. To me, the silver lining is the gift they've bestowed on me in teaching me. I have many, uh, you know, obviously I, I'm an Alzheimer's expert. We, I go out to dinner. Everyone says glibly, you know, if I have Alzheimer's, just shoot me. And I and I often think, hmm, I can tell you, I have a lot of, I have hundreds, if not thousands, of patients with Alzheimer's. Few of them want to be shot, and I think that says something interesting societal on our society. We place such a strong emphasis on information and information processing and on quickness and storage. What my patients have taught me um, is that you can actually lose that ability and still engage life, still love your family, even in relatively late stages, still uh, be awed by the beauty of, of art and, and, and the sunset and music. So I think the gift my patients have given me is teaching me and maybe through me others that, yes, we live in an in- information dependent uh, world, but information processing is not everything. <laughs> um, so that's I hope you don't mind the editorializing, but that's that's something that's important. So, did I answer your question, or did I go on on a digression? Uh, and no, you answered my question about Alzheimer. But now we'll get into autism, and then I will probably come back to that question about uh, what we can learn about normal memory function by studying these pathologies. But f- first of all, let's get then into autism. So what happens there? Yeah, so so the first thing to say about autism, and again, and so there I rely on an expert, uh, 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 an expert at UCLA named Dan Geshwin, who's by all accounts one of the leading experts. And I, n- I not only needed him to help me understand the science to get it right, I also needed him because it's actually a socio-political issue, uh, and I do do feel the need to qualify that. So you know that some, first of all, auto, auto, so is autism even a disorder? A lot of family members and people with autism say no, it's just part of diversity, and that's maybe true. Um, Dan doesn't really think so, particularly with extreme forms of autism. But even autism itself, is not singular. I mean, Alzheimer's is sort of singular. Schizophrenia is, you know, Parkinson's is. Autism is autisms, right? So it's a way in to say that whatever I say next is going to be provisional. But it is super interesting uh, that, remember we talked about the molecular toolbox that has been identified for forgetting, for normal forgetting. 
Right. We know those. The, the list is growing, but we at least know the, the, the first group of molecules and pathways. It turns out that many of the genes that are linked to Alzheimer's impair, I'm sorry, to autism, impair those pathways. And so it does sort of fit with one version of autism, that autism is simply um, a disorder of not being able to forget enough. And it actually is interesting. I've lectured on this and I was hypersensitive because I know, and in fact, um, parents of kids with autism said, stop worrying because you've actually helped me understand my, my, my child in that case. And in fact, the father of autism uh, wrote his seminal paper in the 1950s um, that really describes that with autism, that there's an inability of uh, seeing the forest from the trees, the inability to generalize, the inability to extract a gestalt. And it, it's, it's anchored in what we know in animal models when we turn down the forgetting pathways, that there's this inflexibility, there's this lack of uh, ability to generalize. And that really turns out to be a central benefit of forgetting, right? So, um, uh, I start the book with a quote from uh, Borges, and he wrote, actually he and uh, the father of, of, of autism were writing at the same time, I don't think they knew each other, but he wrote this book, this short story on Funes the Memorius, this, 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 this cowboy in Argentina who was thrown from a horse, wakes up with completely perfect memory. And it's so incredibly accurate on what we now know happens when forgetting goes awry. There's no ability to generalize. So when he saw his face in the morning and his face in the evening, different light, different settings, he didn't recognize it. And if you think about it computationally, they're different faces. When he saw a dog in the morning, dog in the evening, every time he thought of a of a childhood memory, it wasn't like, okay, I remember you know, an element of it he was flooded by all the minutia of every aspect of that memory. And I think it's a great example of what, uh, what when forgetting goes awry, you really develop this inability to generalize um, and you have inflexibility. And some people would argue that that's part of the autism syndrome. So. Yeah, so uh, now going back to that question I mentioned before, generally speaking, can we learn something about how memory functions by studying these sorts of disorders? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I said the hippocampus is the safe function. The reason we know that, uh, until the 1950s, the hippocampus was thought to be part of the olfactory system because that's what it connects to. It was only because there was this patient who had... Uh, epilepsy, surgeons removed his hippocampus and trying to help him and he woke up without an ability to save uh, in new information. I've had a couple of patients like that. So that's an example of where studying pathology helps us understand both the structural organization of the network of memory and then there are patients who have specific molecular defects that get to the molecular biology of memory as well. Yeah, so now this is more of a psychological question but are there any biases or heuristics that are related to memory? Uh, there probably are. Uh, I, one of the chapters deals with 
Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner who won his Nobel on heuristics and biases. And the deep lesson is that there's no such thing as no bias. But maybe if you can help make sure I answer your question, could you be more specific? So yes, there are biases. What, what do you mean exactly? Well, I mean, if some of them, if some of these biases and heuristics are related to memory and perhaps forgetting that perhaps some of them occur because people forget. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm asking. Well, I think I think if I could, OK, well, if you're allowing me to open end the question, I think I think a bias and I start the book by saying that in the field is that, you know, memory is all more memory is always the noble goal. Forgetting should be fought tooth and nail. That's a bias. That's more mm -hmm. than heuristic. That's a embedded bias that is categorically wrong. So I think that's true. Uh, and that's the that's the punchline of the book. Yeah. Okay, so uh, now just a couple of questions before we finish. Uh, people usually say they would like to have better memories, but is that something people should want? Um, I think after reading the book or just reading the science, you can shortcut or long cut this. I think what people should not want is what we sometimes think we want, and that's to have the superpower of having photographic memory. That I think I can say with certainty. No one should want that. Now, I can imagine where uh, you know a lawyer might want better memory to make him a better lawyer, or a doctor might want better memory to study easier for her exams, and, and I get that. And, and there's nothing wrong with wanting that. Uh, but now that we understand that it's a seesaw and it's not just a singular better memory, it comes at a price, just approach it carefully, approach that desire carefully. Yeah. And do we have any tools for improving memory, improving in the sense that people would like to improve their memories? I mean, are there any ways of doing that? Well, I mean, in the old literature, that was called a neurotropic. So basically, not just curing a pathology like Alzheimer's that, that, that reduces our memory from our baseline, but improving our memory in general. Uh, there's been a whole literature on that. It's been sketchy. I, I could tell you that I'm working on, I, I, if there are, I prefer to focus on um, diet and lifestyle because I think that is more accessible to everything and it's not a real disease. There's certainly evidence that I've contributed to that has shown that physical exercise enhances hippocampal function. I'm working on some nutrients like flavanols. We've done some clinical trials on this because you have to do a clinical trial that seem to suggest that it might improve memory, but I'm not sure about that. I'm not recommending that at this point, maybe in the future. So I think that, and then there are video games, you know, uh, cognitive exercises. So I think that's, it, it, it seems implausible, given what we know about <laughs> the memory mechanisms, that there are no way, that there, there should not be ways to improve it um, above and beyond just practice, right, which we've learned how to do. Uh, and I'm sure there are, Given the fact that that has to be true, it's remarkable how hard it is to find those reliably. But I'm sure it's out there. So yes, I think there will be ways to enhance memory. But I would prefer for it not to be a drug. I'd prefer to, 
to be a lifestyle change, cognitive exercise, physical exercise, or nutrition. Right. Okay, so the book is again forgetting the benefits of not remembering. Uh, before we go, uh, Scott, would, would you like to mention where people can find your work on the internet? Uh, the work on the internet, uh, you just put in Scott Small at Columbia and you'll find all the links. Uh, I actually don't have a website. Uh, I am the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia. That has a website and that's probably the easiest way to find everything you wanted to know about Alzheimer's and my work in included. Okay, so it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you for the great questions. Hi guys, thank you for watching this episode until the end. The channel depends on your support to keep running and so I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my pretty page and consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. You also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview and otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, comment and subscribe to the channel. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Pereira Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Fordans, Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Plyfe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Kusen, Evan Bodrenkwal, Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslam Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sullen Wilson, Yasila Des Araujo, Ian Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, My producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.